Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, NPR is celebrating 50 years, and you've been hearing some memories from UPR staff members, and now it's your turn. We're opening the phone lines, asking you to share your most memorable NPR or UPR moment or person or program or story. You can email us right now to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, our guests uh, include uh, former NPR correspondent Corey Flintoff, who joins us on the telephone. Corey Flintoff, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. It's really nice to be back on with you again. Good to have you on, celebrating NPR 50. Uh, we have former uh, UPR station manager Richard Mang in studio. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Um, former uh, development officer, was that your title, Nora? Uh, special events and development something. Yeah. It's been too long. Then interim station manager and uh, and everything. Nora Zambrino joins us. Thanks very thanks, much. Thanks for, Great thanks to be us. here. Uh, a little later in the program, we'll hear a conversation I recorded yesterday with uh, with uh, Brian Earle, uh, former development director. And uh, we have uh, in uh, two studios from me, we have uh, our chief engineer, Friend Weller. Good morning. Good morning. We'll hear from you uh, just a little bit later. And uh, current uh, senior producer and all things considered host, Shalane Smith-Needham. Do we have you with us, Shalane? There we go. We yeah we have uh, a limited we have so many people on we have a limited <laughs> faders but uh, Shalane is with us so uh, we'll hear from them just a little bit later. Um, let me uh, start with you, uh, Corey Flintoff. Um, well, let me let me preface this by reading something from our former station manager Kathy Ives, uh, who Corey you know. Um, and Kathy was not able unfortunately to join us uh, today. Uh, she really wanted to from uh, South Carolina. Uh, but she said, my fondest memories of NPR over the past 50 years include dear friends like Carl Cassell, uh, Carl Castle, uh, rather Corey Flintoff, who has a named uh, student internship for UPR, Eric Westervelt, and Utah's own Howard Burkus, who covered everything mining, Olympics, and rural stories. Uh, so before we go to you, Kathy Ives is name-dropping you, uh, Corey Flintoff. And uh, by the way, thank you. <laughs> Th- thank you for that uh, student internship fund. Oh, that's that's my pride and joy. So, um, I want to uh, talk about uh, maybe I think you may be most famous for being a foreign correspondent, um, and uh, NPR famously started with uh, some great women uh, at at the helm. Uh, maybe talk about uh, following two NPR women into battle, uh, as it were. Yes, I literally did that. Um, I followed. Uh, I, I've been following Lulu Garcia Navarro uh, for years during her career because I would always. I was sort of a utility player at NPR, and so I'd come in uh, and and follow correspondents, especially after they'd been out in the field for quite a while, and and especially if they'd had to face pretty dramatic experiences. Um, and so I followed Lulu uh, into Haiti. Uh, when she was uh, the Mexico and Caribbean correspondent uh, during the elections in 2006, a very violent, uh, uh, but ex- a violent uh, election in an extremely vibrant and wonderful society, and that is what made me into a foreign correspondent when I discovered, you know, the excitement of being able to cover people's lives like that. Um, 
I was absolutely hooked. And so I subsequently followed Lulu um, to Baghdad, where she was uh, a, uh, a, an Iraq war correspondent. Um, and I followed her into Libya right after the uh, liberation of Tripoli, where she had spent a month uh, following the, the rebel forces as they made their way against the Gaddafi's soldiers in, in Tripoli. And uh, so I took over from her there and spent my own month. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Lulu would all, always be a step ahead of me, and so that she was there for the liberation of Tripoli and uh, some of the heavy fighting, I might add. And, you know, I came along in time to see the celebration uh, as the rebels took over. Uh, another woman that I followed was uh, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Uh, she was the longtime correspondent in Afghanistan, and I relieved her after she'd spent weeks during the invasion of Marja in southern Afghanistan, uh, which was a really desperate situation where um, she had one of the soldiers that she had just interviewed was shot uh, in a in a firefight that she was part of or that she was recording um, even, you know, just a matter of hours after she had talked to this guy. So that was a very, very difficult assignment. And uh, and uh, she came out and got some, some relief and some rest, and I came in and filled in for her. But once again, by the time I got there, it was a lot easier. Mm. Uh, how unusual was that to have, have female foreign correspondents? Was, was that... Something Not that... terribly unusual for NPR, mm-hmm. because yeah. uh, you can remember um, uh, correspondents like Ann Garrels, who reported in, in Russia and in the Middle East quite a lot. Um, you know, NPR was pioneering as far as uh, bringing uh, women into uh, really prominent reporting jobs like that. Um, I'm not sure that, for instance, any of the national commercial networks can boast the same thing, but uh, we have always had a strong presence from from women um, as reporters and correspondents. You know, from the very beginning, from 1970. Um, you know, when Linda Wertheimer uh, came on and Nina Totenberg. You know, and all that uh, great first cadre of women reporters. So, Nora, I want to turn to you next. Uh, Kathy Ives, by the way, says one of her other you know big memorable. Uh, things from NPR 50 is the founding mothers of NPR, Nina Totenberg, Linda Wertheimer, Koki Roberts. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, another person who comes to mind, and it's further along, not one of the founding women, um, is Renee Montaigne, who uh, also uh, did some correspondence work in South Africa um, covering Nelson Mandela's release. And and then the um, elections that followed later on. And and, you know, what I remember about um, Renee, when she came to visit Utah Public Radio for one of our anniversaries, one of our big ones, she talked about the changes. And and Corey could probably speak to this over the years about how news became more and more instantaneous and and she compared when she was here in early 2000s she compared how back when covering Nelson Mandela um she had to call London to get the the latest news and then have it come back to her 
and and uh, just the transformation that had happened in the way that news became instantaneous, the access um, and the ability of NPR to to keep so fast and current was just you know staggering comparatively. But the work that they had to do in those early years to get the information out and stay on top of everything, um, it it really it kind of um, gave me a you know, a perspective that I hadn't had before. Yeah. So, Nora, when we, we talk about NPR, those 50 years, what's top of mind for you as a memory or a moment? Uh, when you when you asked me, I, you know, a million things came flooding back. But I think the one that is the most meaningful to me uh, was Hurricane Katrina and, and you know, the, what resulted um, and unfolded through NPR – um, and it was uh, Steve Inskeep who did a, a, a regular report with a couple who lived in St. Bernard Parish, which is right outside of New Orleans. And he gave us a, a view of what life was like in the aftermath and trying to rebuild. And we heard from uh, Colleen and Donald Bordelon, and every Every couple of weeks, he would he would get them on the phone. They'd talk about living with a generator on the roof and living, you know, with no running water until they got a FEMA trailer in their their yard. And uh, you know, um, it, it, they were one of very few people in their neighborhood who actually returned and were determined to rebuild. And they got got underway, and then they found out they had to jack up their house three feet. And I mean. I really connected with the city that I'd never visited. And then a year later, NPR, um, actually the development organization that we worked with, um, made a commitment to have the national conference there for public radio developers. And I think it was late July of 2006. Kathy Ives was there, by the way. And... um, and I got to go to New Orleans to see what you know what it was like a year la- almost a year later, and um, I, we stayed in a hotel where people had actually stayed in in the stairwells to keep safe. Some of the NPR correspondents who were there and covering Katrina, and then to see and and it was you know I'd never been there. It was still um, some businesses open, some not. And we toured the the Ninth Ward, um, which was a complete ghost town. And I guess that's where I, I just I couldn't believe that you know I was actually seeing what I had been hearing about for the past year, week after week after week. And um, so that's that's uh, probably one of my big ones, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's an extraordinary opportunity. Richard Meng, what's what what comes foremost to you as you think over that? I was I was pondering this a little. I was hired as program director of Utah Public Radio, and my first day at work was July first, nineteen seventy-two. Hmm. About two, maybe three months later, we joined National Public Radio, uh-huh. and uh, at that time, the stations were all interconnected by landline, uh, telephone lines. 
And the thing I remember is when finally we got to satellite distribution, and for the first time, we heard the All Things Considered theme song in stereo. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> uh, but it has, you know, over the years, um, I think, changed a lot of lives as people are able to see and feel what's going on in the world from a totally different perspective than normal. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, we're sitting here at Utah State University, the first two presidents of NPR. It's, you, you can't make this up. Uh, from, and I'm not. It's true. Uh, <laughs> from Utah State University. Yeah. Don Quayle, Lee Frischnick, uh, yep. Utah State University. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, so, Corey Flintoff, I want to take you back to uh, your start uh, in Alaska, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, I so started at a, at a small station in southwest Alaska called KYUK. Uh, Alaska has uh, quite the system of public radio, doesn't it? It does, and it, it happens because, um, you know, I mean, the beauty of, of public radio is that, you know, it can join up places that wouldn't necessarily be commercially viable, you know, for a commercial network. You know, in Alaska, of course, the small Alaska towns don't have that. So public radio is the thing that bound together um, all those towns, you know, from Barrow to Kotzebue to my town, which was Bethel, um, you know, Fairbanks. There were about 16 stations. And it's not unlike Utah in that, you know, there are just a lot of fairly rural places that, um, you know, need information as much as anybody else does. So how did you, remind me, how did you get, get started? Just knock on the door, say, hey, do you need an announcer? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, it happened that my wife was a, a dentist in the public health uh, in public health service, or Indian health service at the time, and uh, she got transferred to this very small town in southwestern Alaska that was primarily uh, Yupik area. And, uh, you know, it had a great number of Yupik language speakers there. And so uh, the, the town had a bilingual radio station, English and Yupik. And, they, you know, public radio stations always need, usually always need help, especially volunteer help. So uh, all you had to do to get on the air there was to be able to learn how to say the station identification in Yupik. So I got someone to teach me how to do it phonetically. And I came on, and uh, I can still do it. Um, it, it it's Nichuguniuchi, Nichuguni Sutkun, Kewa Yukemuk, Mani Montalethlami. Wow. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's quite the talent, yeah. Very good. Yeah, it got me a job. Got you a job, that's right. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Well, as we go along here, uh, you know, hitting other, uh, some of those high points you, you got on, obviously, with the NPR. Um, but uh, it's time for break. We have with us uh, former NPR correspondent uh, Corey Flintoff uh, in studio, uh, former uh, UPR staff members uh, Richard Mang and Nora Zambrino. Later we'll hear from Brian Earl and uh, current UPR staffers uh, Shalane Smith-Needham and Fred Weller are joining us as well. We'll hear from them uh, following uh, the break. I want to tell just a, a little story, uh, to a parting shot from my now 25 years, I can't believe it, 25 years at, at UPR. Um, so I hosted for many years a program called uh, Opera Saturday, and that started when I was a part-time uh, guy hired, hired by Richard Bang, um, and uh, the, the, my shift just happened to include a, a gap after the Metropolitan Opera, where you you just 
filled with some music. So I did that, and uh, after a while, I started calling it Opera Saturday. And, um, but I remember uh, one day, uh, and you get calls from listeners, obviously, you know, complain, uh, helpful, praise, whatever it might be. And this lady said, love your show, but there's no W in sword. <laughs> and up to that point, up to that phone call, I had always in my life pronounced the W in sword. I, I always said sword. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, so <laughs> I was pretty embarrassed, but grateful, you know. Love your show. Uh, lose the W of sword. So that's that's just one example of it's it's a it's a nice community, right? <laughs> the lady just took the time to 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 correct me on and and there's a lot of swords in in opera, right? Plots and so during Opera Saturday, you're saying a lot of sword, sword. right? But now I say sword. So thank you. That's a good one. Thank you to you. Uh, I, I don't remember your name. Wherever you are. Yeah, wherever you are. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we are uh, celebrating NPR's uh, 50th birthday, and uh, we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and the USU Kane College of the Arts Fry Street Chamber Music Festival, including live concerts with Fry Street Quartet and festival guest artists on July 16th, 17th, and 20th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Performance details and tickets at utahstateaggies.com slash tickets. Support also comes from Idaho National Laboratory, celebrating young professionals throughout July. INL recognizes the contributions these individuals make at the laboratory and in the community. More information on inclusive careers is online at inl.gov. This week on This American Life, Kara was pretty green when she decided at 17 that she wanted to be a stripper. For her first shift, she went dress shopping. It was a, a purple dress. I got it from Macy's. Was it like floor length? Yeah, it's flowing. And I see all these girls and they're in like fishnets and clear heels. Sex workers and laws that are supposed to protect them, but don't. This week. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. It's NPR's 50th birthday this year. I think uh, May was the official, uh, I can't remember the day in May, but uh, 1971. And we're celebrating. By the way, I uh, can't neglect this. Uh, UPR, NPR, Public Radio is listener supported. And uh, so you can go to our website right now and support UPR. And so upr.org is a place to go, upr.org. We really appreciate it. Appreciate all the support uh, through the COVID times and uh, continue to need your support. So uh, upr.org is the place to go to support this programming. Uh, before we go to French Lane, uh, Corey Flintoff, um, the, you know, my little anecdote before the, the break, uh, d- especially in Alaska there where you were, you know, at the, the, the local station, did you have, you have any stories, interactions with listeners? Oh, God, yes. Well, pronouncers, certainly, because uh, our area had uh, uh, more than 50 uh, Yupik villages, um, you know, all of which had rather complicated names, uh, and uh, you had to learn how to pronounce them. And, of course, I went through a terrible time, <laughs> and people would hear me every day mangling the names of their of their home villages, and, and I would get all kinds of phone calls with people who would actually walk me through it very kindly for the most part, but uh, 
not. Uh, it was it was a it was a long learning curve. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is a community feeling, isn't it? Especially there, but uh, you know, in a larger scale, I guess when you got to NPR. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it even you, you kind of mentioned the the kindness and the intelligence of of NPR listeners, and uh, it's it's certainly true. Uh, you know, I'd, one thing I've encountered in all the messages that I've gotten from people over the years, some of them extremely critical, is the, the sort of intelligence and the empathy of people who listen to public radio. And, you know, it goes back to the very beginning, as you mentioned, you know, and I went back and I looked up the NPR statement of purpose that was issued in 1970. This was written by Bill Seemering, who's one of the founding fathers of NPR. And if I may, I just wanted to read the very first paragraph, because yes. it not only sets out what um, what NPR will do, it's very acerbic about what NPR will not do. So here's what Bill Seemering wrote. National Public Radio will serve the individual. It will promote personal growth. It will regard the individual differences among men with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. It will celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal. It will encourage a sense of active, constructive participation rather than apathetic helplessness. I'm so proud of that. Yeah, that, that, that that's a good mission statement. It also gives you a sense of the man, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, it, he was a real visionary in public radio. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to turn to our chief engineer, Fred Weller, and our uh, All Things Considered host, senior producer, uh, Shalane Smith-Needham. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, so, uh, I guess, Fred, take it away. Well, we'll kind of set the stage here and everything for it. Um, of course, you know, history, January 28th, 1986, Challenger launches and gets, what is it, 75, 80 seconds into the flight, and we have this disaster. Uh, there had been folks uh, out at Thiok Hall on the other side of the hill here in Box Elder County, and they said, oh, we're not so sure, because they'd had record cold temperatures overnight, and they're saying, we're not so sure that we should be doing this. But the decision makers back at the Cape said, nope, we've got to do it, we got to do it. Well, uh, we move forward in a time, of course, you know, the investigation, the whole deal, and they determined all they should have launched and so on and so forth. But uh, we move forward in a time to the 30th anniversary, which was just a, a few years ago, of the uh, Challenger disaster. And uh, on January 28th, and Howard Burkus, uh, friend of the station, he files a report. And the report that he has filed is he's gone and interviewed Bob Ebling, the uh, engineer. The, well, there were a couple of two, three, but his name was in the news there prominently. And it was like, uh, uh, what, what, what are your feelings 30 years later? And his comments, and, and Shalane and I listened to this. We were in the control room together, getting ready to do the stock report a little bit. That's when we still did a stock report at 348. And we both heard it. It was just like, you know how do you how do you deliver a stock report after you hear what this man had gone through because he he'd left Thiok Hall you know and everything and he'd tried to do volunteer work and things like that but he this so affected his life because he had told people he'd said you know I warned them I you know called I did everything I could 
everything possible. My daughter drove me to work. I was not scheduled to be at work at that time. She drove me to work, and he recounted pounding on the dashboard, don't launch, because he knew what was going to happen. He knew that those O-ring seals between the various sections of the solid rocket boosters, it would they would not seal because of the cold. Everything would have contracted too much, and there could very well be, and, you know, he gets out there and everything, and he's just, you know, no one is listening, at least back at uh, launch control, wherever you want to, wherever they push the big red button, you know. And, uh, of course, we saw what happens. Well, he, you know, he said, and this, this is the part that really gets me, it's been, what, three, let's see, 86, so that'd be 2016, so that's five years ago now. It still gets me that he said that, when he, now, he'd been diagnosed with cancer. He was kind of in hospice care the last few, last year of his life kind of thing. And uh, he said, um, that he says, when I get upstairs, I'm going to ask the man, why did you pick me to do this job? Because I am such a loser. It really had destroyed him. And he, you know, it's just, he could not continue on with his life. Although people had said, oh, you were right. You were exactly right. But the thing is, he felt in the deaths of those astronauts that he had failed, not only his company, but himself, his faith, and maybe the world, you know. And so it was, it was just, it was, it was astounding. That, that's a, and, and, and Shalane was there. You, you were right there in yes. the control room. And we're just sitting there going, wow, you know. We still get so emotional about this story. Um, it's still kind of hard to talk about. Um, Howard Burkus did a follow-up report in March. Yes. During the Utah Public Radio Fund Drive. And that was when Bob Ebeling had received several, well, thousands, thousands of letters, <laughs> Just several thousands. thousands of letters from around the world from people who, who sent him letters and said, this is not your fault. You tried to step in and do what you could. And that is when we were listening during the fun drive and Howard Burkus called us here at Utah Public Radio and uh, during our fun drive and let us know that he had this segment coming up. And we were pitching during that segment, and that's when we decided we were going to take the opportunity to meet Bob Ebeling. Yep. So uh, his daughter called in. Yep, she did. Uh, I mean, they were listening to us and everything. It was, you know, it, it was just it's it's that community. It's the world, and yet it's your guy next door or the gal around the corner kind of thing. And so we went down and visited with him. And uh, he said, well, here, here's a couple of letters that just arrived in the mail this morning. Would you yeah. open them and read them to me? So yeah. we uh, opened, uh, opened up the letters and read them to him and everything. Again, more people saying, sir, you are not a failure. You are not a loser. You did all in your power. In fact, you are a great man. You know, it's true. What happened, happened. But the thing is, though, is that it was not a fault of his. And so uh, we, uh, you know, went over and visited with him for about a couple of hours, wasn't it? Yeah, we were there uh, a couple of hours yeah. and got to meet his family. Yeah, and... it, was, it was just nice to sit and visit with these folks. And then uh, we had to come back to work. Somebody had to somebody yeah. had to host ATC. Somebody had to do the stocks and keep the place on the air. And so, and then about what was it about a month or six weeks after that, there was a little there was a third little follow up piece that uh, that Howard had filed saying that. Uh, uh, Mr. Ebling had, you know, his cancer had uh, completed itself, and, and that uh, he'd lost the battle and everything, and and uh, that uh, so it was, it was like all of a sudden he's a uh, 
part of my life. And I can't change that, nor do I want to. I mean, this, it was just, it was really. Yeah, it was it a was, moment in time. Yeah, it was incredible. I remember we were all, <clears throat> we were hosting and pitching during the fun drive. <clears throat> Excuse me, my <laughs> voice is still waking up and I'm emotional here about this. So, and Danny Hayes was with us. Yes. And I remember us all looking at each other and we were all teary eyed. And we were thinking, how do we move forward from here and actually talk yeah, on how, the air about How do this? we pitch public radio yes. at this point? And it was like, this is- But we didn't we, really have to. Yeah, I mean, the, the story the, itself- The story spoke of the importance of public radio right there. And it was uh, just, you know, that, that was the thing. Howard called. He called before it aired because one of the mechanics during a pledge drive is sometimes we have to cover over a segment in order to have sufficient time to pitch. And he said, don't cover the B segment. Whatever you do, don't cover the B segment. He knew because he's a member of Utah Public Radio, a friend of the station, a friend of all of us here. And uh, he said, whatever you do, don't cover the B segment because he knew we were in pledge. And so we, you know, he did go into details. And then we heard that story and it's like, okay, now is the time to pitch. But we couldn't find our voices. Yeah, we couldn't. It was it was it was astounding, and uh, I don't know. I'm a I've made a forty year career, forty plus year career out of working in radio, and uh, it's one of those things where it's like, yep, that's why I work in radio. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, me too. Well, that's that's amazing. Thank you, friend Shalane, for sharing that. That's, you bet. That's, that's love wonderful. to tell the story. Wonderful. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to get so emotional, oh, but we. Five years later, we... Yeah, it's still, it's, it's just as impactful. Yeah, yes, it's, it's, it really is. It's warranted. And that's... That's not me. Yeah. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> um, so, uh, Corey Flintoff, I'd kind of unfair to come to you, uh, whoever I come to after this. Um, but uh, I don't know, did, have you ever had an experience where it closed the loop quite that spectacularly, where, where you had that kind of a, you know, a, a follow-up? Um... No, I can't say I have. Uh, just because, I mean, we're talking about how these events played out over a, a long period of time, and very much, you know, as, as a foreign correspondent, my uh, my reporting has been done, in, you know, in fairly short intervals, you know, so I haven't had that kind of marvelous follow-up. Yeah. Illustrates that, that community feeling, though, and the, and the impact that public radio can, can have. I wanted to ask you, uh, Corey, uh, what um, what it takes to be a good NPR host. You've thought a lot about this, I know. <laughs> I have because, you know, because I was a sort of utility player, I used to fill in for hosts and, and uh, correspondents and that sort of thing. And, uh, and of course, I had a lot of interaction with the hosts since I was a, a newscaster for years. And I would say that the thing that makes a good NPR host is authenticity. Uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that make up a good host. You know, one is obviously intelligence um, and intellectual curiosity, but you know, there's also emotional curiosity. You know, you have to be the kind of person who, like Howard, for instance, would ask the question about how did it feel? You know, what did it mean to you? You know, so that's that's very important. Um, you know, but authenticity is important because I think listeners like to know that the person that they're hearing on the air is the person, is the real person, 
And Susan Stanberg was always a perfect example of that. She projected a lot of intelligence and warmth and personal concern on the air. And people related to it, and she was exactly that person in person. You know, when you knew her, she was that that funny, warm, caring, and really perceptive, really intelligent person. Um, Scott Simon's another good example. You know, this is a guy who um, has, you know, a lot of life experience. I mean, a really wonderful combination of things. He was he was the child of vaudeville performers. Um, you know, he'd been through all kinds of reporting, from war reporting to disasters to that kind of thing, before he became a host. But he's a guy with who just wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, you know when he's emotionally moved by something, you know, by an interview that he conducts or a story that he conveys to you, that this is the real Scott Simon. You know, and we see that, you know, in today's uh, hosts, you know, Elsa Chang, for instance, is, uh, uh, or Audie Cornish are really kind of the heirs of Susan Stamberg in, in terms of conveying genuine warmth and genuine empathy and that very sharp intelligence. So, Richard Meng, um, during the break, uh, Nora was, was referring to you as a founding father, right? That's right. Um, That's right. Referring to the founding mothers <laughs> of NPR. So, a founding father of UPR. UPR. Uh, and, and you, I guess uh, UPR got on board with NPR just about a year after they were founded, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but some other memorable events uh, happened, NPR events, uh, national events happened here. Didn't they? I think... Uh, I, I recall the coverage of the uh, commission investigating the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and we carried those day after day after day. It was fascinating. It was, uh, it was a soap opera in real life. Those kinds of things, in my way of thinking, really earmark what National Public Radio is capable of doing. It opens the world in ways that uh, otherwise it's just not available to the average listener. And uh, there there have been a number of those kinds of things where uh, coverage continued for days and days, and you really got a pretty good picture of what actually was going on. Yeah. Of course, that continues. We've Absolutely. We had, you know, full wall-to-wall coverage of both impeachments of President uh, uh, Trump, for example. You know, bring it up to, to, to current sure. times. Sure, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Nora Zambrino, what's top of mind for you? Uh, uh, Tom, you mentioned when we talked um, 9-11, and I think um, it wasn't just the actual um, tragedy but it was what unfolded after, uh, again, um, you know, what happens after the stories after, and uh, days and months, and then uh, the Iraq War, you yeah. know, which we're continuing to to hear reports on. But, you know, um, I, I rely on National Public Radio for my news. I, I'm, I'm still not any better at sitting down and, and uh, getting on the Internet and reading. Um, I, I go s- straight to um, our streaming here at Utah Public Radio, and 
and the radio. I still love you know uh, turning on a radio, but um, it, the unfolding of news and the the day to dayness, waking up and finding out what's happened over the night, um, is is still so important. And uh, I think um, when I think about some memories it was what we you know what we had to learn and what we had to do as a country a nation and and as uh, the throughout the world to deal with that tragedy yeah yeah uh kathy ives mentions one of the other things she mentions is uh those friday morning chats with red barber that's uh, brought back some great <laughs> oh yeah great great memories um so, uh, Corey Flintoff, I wonder, as a, putting on your hat as a listener rather than a you know a foreign correspondent or a host, um, what what stands out to you? Well, of course, you know those those big uh, big events. You know, nine eleven is is a good example. Um, you know, but and, and Katrina certainly. You know the the terrible disasters. Um, and one of the things that has always stood out for me as a listener. Is that you know when when there's an event like that, the coverage doesn't stop after just you know a week or a couple of weeks. Um, NPR has, and and I've sat in on you know editorial meetings where people discuss this, saying you know we cannot drop this story because um, you know even after the headlines are over with, the people are being who've been affected are still out there and they're still contending with whatever trauma has happened. And so that's always been a part of NPR policy that really impressed me as a listener. I want to hear, you know, months later or years later, what happened to those people Mm -hmm. and what that experience meant for them. That's something that I just love about NPR. And I agree, Corey. I'll I'll just go back to to Katrina and the the follow-up that Steve Inskeep did just five years ago with that couple, uh, Colleen and Donald Bordelon, except to find out that Donald had actually passed away. And and all the men in their family had passed away. Um, But but that same, I, I had that same feeling, that personal connection um, about revisiting and coming coming back and and it is that human connection, the story I think that is is most important to me. The, these are the kinds of stories that we here used to call driveway moments. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You get off work, you're in your car, you're headed home, you're listening to NPR. You get home, you pull in the driveway, and you just cannot get out of the car until that story yep. is over. It touches you. And I think we've all had those experiences. Yeah. And continue to have them. But yeah. that is definitely, as listener, um, that's one of the things that's first and foremost that I think that National Public Radio is uh, masterful at and continues to be. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we have with us uh, Corey Flintoff, former uh, NPR correspondent uh, in studio, former UPR staff members Richard Mang and Nora Zambrino. Uh, after the break, we'll hear from uh, former uh, staff member, development director Brian Earl, and we've heard from current UPR staffers Shalane Smith-Needham and, and Friend Weller. Um, before we go to break, just a reminder that uh, all of this we're talking about, NPR and UPR is listener-supported, and uh, we would appreciate your support. Uh, UPR.org is the place to go to uh, take care of that. You can uh, 
You can donate there to the Corey Flintoff Student Intern Fund as well, upr.org, upr.org. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting The Mountaintop, Dreaming American, The Thanksgiving Play, Interact Times 2, and All the Way. Performances through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. Support also comes from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, performing Mozart's Requiem 1 p.m. Saturday, July 10th at the Ellen Eccles Theater. Proceeds from the concert will benefit the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. Ticket information at utahfestival.org. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We're uh, celebrating NPR's 50th uh, birthday here on the program. And we have with us in studio Richard Mang and Nora Zambrino. And on the phone line, it's uh, former NPR correspondent Corey Flintoff. Uh, so I want to go uh, maybe to kind of end the program uh, conversation I had yesterday with uh, Brian Earle, a former devel- development director. Before we do that, uh, Corey Flintoff. We're going to get another, uh, I guess, a story from you. Um, understand the most difficult, you were a utility uh, 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 person, right? Fill in a lot. And uh, why don't you have you tell me the most difficult fill-in job you ever had? Okay. I have to tell you, it is following uh, Mary Louise Kelly. This is back when Mary Louise Kelly was national security uh, correspondent, and uh uh, I filled in for her when she took a maternity leave. She was gone for about three months. And, uh, you know, the national security is one of the most difficult beats to to follow um, because it takes a long time to develop sources and to get people to trust you. And Mary Louise had, you know, you, you know her as a host. She's one of those very intelligent, you know, crystal clear uh, people, you know, who, who had a really perceptive reporter. And she had spent two years building up a Rolodex and, uh, or, a, you know, a list of sources in the intelligence community. And she was one of the most effective uh, national security uh, reporters that I've ever seen. So when I went to fill in for her, she gave me a really valuable list of these sources. And I thought, oh, okay, that can't be this hard. I've got all these people I can talk to. But I discovered that um, the one thing I didn't have that Mary Louise had was trust. She had spent all this time building up the trust of these sources and letting them know who she was, you know, that she was somebody who could be relied upon um, to report honestly 
without giving away um, any any secrets or anything of that kind. Um, so when I went to to do her to do reporting on her beat and contacted all these people, it was amazing. Uh, you know, uh, they were all very polite and all very official and everything, but they were giving me nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's got that's got to be really tough. Yeah, you, you soldier on, I guess, right? Do the best you can. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. I managed to find you know find plenty of things to report mm-hmm. on, but not on the very sensitive kind of national yeah. security that Mary Louise did. Right, right. Yeah, she she is a, a treasure. Uh, well, let's uh, we're uh, to come down to the end of the program here. I wanted to get in at least portion of this interview that I, I did yesterday with a uh, former development director uh, Brian Earle. Let's hear this. Maybe to start with NPR. Is there a story that you heard on the radio or personality or moment that that comes top of mind when you think about uh, NPR? I think for me, it has what really hooked me initially uh, was Nina Totenberg uh, listening to her uh, explanation of the Supreme Court. And I, I didn't really know much about the Supreme Court. I knew how it functioned, but to be able to hear... Uh, how she reported what was happening. I, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is kind of interesting. Uh, okay, I'll I'll maybe tune in a little bit more. Of course, I was going to school at USU, and one of my classes in journalism was uh, a requirement to, to listen to NPR. And so that's kind of how I, I got hooked. And the interesting thing is, is that my son, who's now living in the country of Georgia, before he left, he said, I noticed when I got into his car to drive it, it was always tuned to NPR, so I asked him about it because he used to complain uh, so much about having to listen to NPR, but now he's listening to it. <laughs> he went so, from complaining to enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. well, and that's that's the whole idea with, with NPR. It's providing a, a balanced perspective, and it's hard to find that elsewhere. I mean, there's... I don't really know of a newspaper that that does that too well, uh, to be honest. And I know with NPR, I'm I'm going to get that uh, objective view of the world. In addition to that, there's the the entertainment program. So one of the things that that really kept me coming back as well is Performance Today. Um, I still listen to Performance Today. I religiously do the um, Piano Puzzler each week. Um, I have it sent to my email account, so I make sure I don't miss it. And uh, so I do that each week, and and I've gotten others as well. I just shared it with a friend of mine who's never listened to NPR, and, um, well, I guess Performance Today isn't NPR anymore, so, okay, you can scratch that out. Um, anyway, just, he's had never listened to public radio before, and so now he... he wants to share that with his students. He's a, a band director, so he's going to have a great time with that, he says. Um, I'm just trying to th- think anything of of major import. I was listening to NPR pretty much when I found out about it. Um, when I was on my internship out of college, I was at Coin TV in, in Portland, Oregon, and... Well, pretty much anyone I I knew then is gone, so I can say this. But uh, while they had the TV on, 
um, I would go to my radio so I could listen to what NPR was saying about it. That's how much I, I trusted NPR. So sorry about that, Brian. Fade out a little bit. Uh, he went on to say that uh, one of the great things about working at UPR was the people. So he, he uh, gave a shout out to uh, to all of you great folks. But we need to uh, end here. We'll go to uh, pretty soon here to uh, Leo T and Skywatcher. Uh, so Corey Flintoff, um, but uh, maybe thirty seconds. Your last reflections on NPR's fiftieth birthday. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to see fifty more. Uh, you know, now now that I'm retired, I am a full-time listener, as I'm sure we all are. And, uh, you know, I'm so impressed with the new generation of, of hosts and reporters and people out there um, are carrying on the tradition. So, um, you know, I just look to this enterprise going on and continuing to serve the public as they always have. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Corey Flintoff. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. And uh, thanks, Nora Zambrino. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. It was fun being here with all of you. Thank you. Richard Mang, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Friend, thank you. You bet. And Shalane. Thank you so much. Good to be back here during Access Utah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have a history here, don't we? Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. We'll go out with Leo T. and Skywatcher. Skywatcher Leo T here. Look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. This Justin from the Associated Press. Astronomers have witnessed a black hole swallowing the most dense object in the universe. Neutron star. That's right, folks. A neutron star swallowed by a black hole in a split-second gulp. Then ten days later, they saw it happen again on the other side of the universe, according to this article from the AP. In both cases, a neutron star, a teaspoon of which would weigh a billion tons, orbits ever closer to that ultimate point of no return, a black hole. Finally, they crash together and the neutron star is gone. Astronomers were able to see the last 500 orbits before these neutron stars were swallowed. All of this took less than a minute and briefly generated as much energy as all the visible light in the observable universe. What? Really? Let's read that again. When the neutron star was swallowed by the black hole, it generated as much energy as all the visible light in the observable universe. Wow, that is quite a statement. While astronomers have seen gravitational waves from two black holes colliding with each other and two neutron stars colliding with each other, this is the first time they have seen one of each crashing into each other and bringing the Skywatcher spaceship much closer to the friendly confines of our solar system. We have a tale of Mars. On Mars, if you're thirsty, just drill down a mile or so, at least on the South Polar region. Researchers analyzing radar data gathered by Europe's Mars Express spacecraft have discovered more evidence for several subsurface lakes about a mile underground, one 12 miles wide, and three more about six miles wide. And in low Earth orbit, the president of, of China called the crew of China's Shenzhou 12 mission to congratulate the crew inside the Tengong core module of the Chinese Space Agency's brand new space station. China has a president? I thought they were a communist nation with a chairman and all that. Hmm. Well, congratulations to the Chinese space program after successfully docking at the module in low Earth orbit on June 17th. I wonder if the other nations of the International Space Station forgot to ask them to join up when they put up the ISS. 
And let's do a little space exploration of our own. Get out into the red rocks or the mountains with the breeze near a lake in the pines. Or in your backyard, looking up near the north. Find the Big Dipper wheeling around the North Star. As you follow the handle of the Dipper around, you can follow the curve in Arc to Arcturus, the beautiful orange supergiant hanging there. Arcturus is the brightest star in the constellation Bautes the Herdsman. Stars also known in Skylore as the Bear Guard. Also the group of stars is known as the Kite, which you can find in the Skywatcher site, a nice chart there. Then spike down to Spica on the way down. Don't forget to look at Zubin el Ganubi. Zubin el Ganubi sits midway between cool blue Spica and the beautiful glowing orb of Antares in the constellation Scorpius. Take a look at those sky charts on the Skywatcher site. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's one culture, many skies. On the ancient Chinese sky charts, there is more than one dipper in the sky. The second one is located far from the North Pole in the southern constellation of Sagittarius, which is full of twinkling deep space objects. They say that this dipper plays chess with the dipper in the north. The outcome of the game being a matter of life and death. In the cultural lore, it is said that the southern dipper is responsible for birth and the northern dipper for death. So keep searching for your own answers and looking up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, Utah Public Radio, a translator station statewide and streaming live. UPR is supported by our members and the Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride, celebrating the 10th annual bike ride Saturday, July 10th. Ranked the number six Grand Fondo event in the USA with 35, 50, 70, and 100 mile routes. More information available at cashgrandfondo.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.